The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2 Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much just for your creative act. Uh, God, that we get to be part of your creation and worship you for that and be co-creators with you in this world. Uh, God, we pray for Ryan as he brings the word. God, give him your, your power and the clarity as he uh, speaks. And God, just prepare our hearts. Uh, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will speak to us about you and uh, about ways that we can uh, become more like you and know you better. Uh, we love you in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Ethan. Good morning, guys. Good morning. You know, it felt like a, a long week for me. My wife and my uh, kids got sick. And, uh, you know, and I was scheduled to preach uh, these weeks. So, oh, man, and I'm like racking my brain. I can't study. I'm working. And, you know, uh, my wife's sick and my kids are sick. So what I want to do right now is just kind of take a deep breath with you before we get started. Is that okay? All right, let's go. On three. One, two, three. <sighs> that felt good. Thank you. So my name is Ryan. I am a deacon of Grace City, and I have been with the church for three years. Randall is uh, with his son, so I want to, you know, if they're going to be watching, good luck to Kai. Uh, But we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Last week, uh, we talked about Genesis, Genesis 1. And we're starting this series, The Gospel in Genesis, because we want to uh, make a, create a foundation for you about the belief and the values and just what is the beginning, what happened, right? So Randall did a great job of setting the, the, the table. So now we're going to put things on the table. So before I start, I want to say shalom, alechem, meaning peace be unto you. And you say alechem shalom, okay? Let's do it. Shalom alechem. The reason I'm doing that is that uh, on Wednesday nights, I have a study, a Hebrew study with a couple of guys, and we're going through Genesis, and we're going through uh, Genesis in Hebrew, and we're going through the whole thing in one year, the whole Bible, and we're going to look into it in its original context, and it's amazing. So if you see any of the guys uh, that, is, that is with us studying, you can ask them questions in Hebrew. Maybe they'll, they'll, they'll probably give you an answer. Now, we want to start the idea with God is relational. God began 
relationships. Who among, by show of hands, how many have um, Facebook? Okay. How about Instagram? Okay. How about Twitter? Okay. About, do you guys remember Friendster? Does anyone remember that? Okay, who, who had Friendster? Okay. How about MySpace? Who had MySpace? Yes. <laughs> One of the biggest things that's going on with our society right now is the so, uh, social media presence, right? It's like your carbon footprint. And, you, you, and one thing I want you uh, to realize is that our footprint is a lot, right? It's crazy. Anyone here have seen the show uh, on Netflix called You, Y-O-U? Okay, if you haven't seen it, it's crazy. It's insane. It talks about um, uh, the millennial generation and how it affects uh, the relationship that they have and how it kind of portrays the relationship that happens because of social media. Another one that uh, my wife started watching is uh, um, Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. <laughs> you guys know who that is? You know, when she brings up, uh, she goes to the house and uh, uh, the, the couple has so much stuff and she goes, hey, does this spark uh, a joy in your life? If not, thank you and let it go, right? So what am I trying to get at? The relationship happens everywhere. Here's some, um, some statistics. Instagram now has one billion monthly users, active users. This was in 2016. Um, over 60% of users log in daily. The biggest demographic are males between 18 and 24. 90% of Instagram users are younger than 35. Crazy, crazy. Here's one thing that, uh, there was a study by Ridgeway and Clayton titled Instagram Unfiltered, and he said this. Recent work by psychology and communication scholars has clearly shown that excessive SNS, or social networking site, networking site use, including Facebook and Twitter use, can have damaging effects on health and romantic relationship outcomes. Indeed, several studies have found that excessive use, including partner surveillance, monitoring, posting, about, uh, posting ambiguous information, and compulsive internet use can be detrimental to romantic relationships. For instance, Klein and others found in multiple studies that excessive Facebook and Twitter use has, was associated with increased relationship conflict pertaining to either the participant's own use or their partner's use, which the researchers termed Facebook-related conflict or Twitter-related conflict. That is amazing stats. That is amazing research on what is going on with our relationships now. And then you realize and you look at it and you can feel this that there, there are broken relationships everywhere. Amen? Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've had your heart broken before by a guy or by a girl. Maybe you have not had a great relationship with your mom or dad 
So you know, you feel this. You feel it. Relationships are hard and relationships are broken. But was it like that in the beginning? Was it like that? Was that the intention? And that's where we want to kind of land on today. And before we do that, let's pray. Father, Lord, I want to thank you for you. I want to thank you for giving us an opportunity to to dig deep and dive into your word. I pray for the relationships that are happening now, the relationships that are broken and the relationships that are being redeemed. Lord, thank you for you. We love you, and we praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So based on our text today, we're going to look at three things. Number one, God begins relationship. Two, God establishes relationship. And three, God redeems relationship. So we're going to go and jump right in. So if you're with me, uh, you have your Bibles? Yes? You have it on your phone? Please, let's open it up. Let's go and start it with Genesis. Now, in Genesis 1, Randall talked about God creating the universe. Genesis 1 says, in, uh, in the beginning, God created. Now, the original Hebrew says, Bereshit bara Elohim. Now, if you speak Hebrew, forgive me if I butchered that. If you don't, then yes, that's how it says. That's how you say it. So it says, Bereshit bara Elohim, in beginning created. God et hashamayim va et haaretz vihaaretz hayetatohu vavohu. When you read this in the original Hebrew, it's a poem. It flows. It's in order. It's amazing. You know what it says? It says, Bereshit bara Elohim, in beginning created. God is defined by what he does, by his action. In the Hebrew language, the the verb comes before the noun. In Exodus it said, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? He's known by who he is, by what he has done. When, When we look at this, God... And you notice, when Randall went over uh, the creation story, God, what did he say? God said, right? Eight times he said that in the creation story, and God said. When you're reading your Bible, when you're reading Genesis, look at the verbs. Look at what he has done. Look at what he's doing. And then ask the question, why? Why? In the second part of Genesis 1, it says, Va hoshek al tehum veruach Elohim. That veruach Elohim means spirit of God. And it says that the spirit of God was hovering. That word ruach means breath, wind, or spirit. Then that, that may not mean anything to you, but what, what it does is that it's compounded by the noun Elohim. So he's saying the spirit of God, not just the spirit. And the word uh, hovering, the Hebrew word for, it, for that is rakap. 
and it's, uh, it's used for a bird hovering over its nest. It's never used for anything else. So it's not an impersonal mist that was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is alive. It's hovering, protective, creative, personal. So if we're looking at that, we know God created, the Spirit of God was hovering, and then what? And God said, right? Now what's the importance of of speaking? What's the importance of speaking? Why does God do that? Why does God speak to his creation? Well, one, he's communicating. He's communicating. He's relating. He's not distant. Where else can we find that? In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when God spoke, there was agency. It was a person. It was the Godhead. So in the beginning, Bereshit bara Elohim, God was. Not just him. Spirit of God and the Word of God. So in the beginning was him and he was a community. So if you think about relationships, think about it this way. He is relationship. He is relational. Because within that Godhead, within that Godhead, there's content gladness and joy that his love overflowed into the canvas of creation and said, you know what? This is, this is creation. It's amazing. In the beginning, right in the pages, first page, God reveals to you who he is. So what makes more sense then when we go to our text when he says, let us make, let us make man, mankind in our, in our own image, in our own likeness. He's not talking to angels. Isaiah 40 says he has no counsel but himself. Angels did not create. They have no ability. The word bara, created, create, is only ever used with God. No one else. He's the only one. So it makes more sense when we say, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So if, if, if that's the case, then you can tell that it's the beginning of community. It's the beginning of community from him. Now, I don't know what, how your relationships are right now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you're lonely or depressed. But what I do know is that in the beginning, the intention was for you to be invited and to partake in that community, in that love, in that relationship. The invitation now is still the same. Come to me, 
he says in Matthew, all of you who are weary and burdened, for my yoke is easy. The invitation is come to me, come to Jesus. What I want you to know is that you're not alone. You never were. You may feel like it. Romans 8, 22 to 23 reminds us of this. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Groaning in the pains of childbirth. Now, I've been, um, we have three kids. And I've been with my wife for uh, all three. And I don't know how it feels, but I can see it, how it might feel. <laughs> and it's painful. So women, you're awesome. <laughs> but imagine that pain. The creation itself knows that it's groaning because it's not right. The original intention was, has been distorted to now. But know that it's being redeemed. See, there's hope. God doesn't leave you in that. God doesn't leave us in that. So if God is the beginning of relationship, he establishes order in that relationship, right? He continues to establish who he is. And that's the first thing I want to look at. So he said in verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. God said that um, to make mankind in our image, the Hebrew word for that is betsel menu or selem. In the more modern uh, Hebrew text, it could be um, uh, mean to shade or shadow. You know what's interesting about a shadow is that the shadow reflects what the original creation is, right? And the closer you are to the light source, the bigger the shadow is. The farther you are from the light source, the smaller the shadow is. Think about that. Pause and think about that. Every single word in the Bible has meaning. It is crafted to the point of precision that when you look at it, God reveals his character to you. So when you get a chance, look into, look into think, uh, learning Hebrew. It's an amazing language. Every single letter, and I tell you this, every single letter is crafted by God. So God establishes identity when he said, I will make you in my image. I will make you image bearer of myself. Um, David Dark says this in The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. He says, like the God in whose image people are made, people are irreducible. There's always more to a person. More stories, more life, more complexities than we know. The human person, when viewed properly, is unfathomable, incalculable, and dear. Perversion always says otherwise. See, the world will tell you you're not enough. 
And in a sense, that's true. But they pervert that. You're not enough because God makes you enough, not yourself. But you were created in His image. Every single person is created in His image. So there's intrinsic value in every single person here and everywhere. Your identity is anchored to a God much bigger than you, much bigger than I am. So don't forget who your identity is anchored to. In Genesis 2, there's a switch. Genesis 1, God's name is just Elohim. It's generic. It's almost like an honorific title, like Mr., in Genesis 2, there's a switch. You'll notice this. Because it'll say, then Lord, the Lord God said. The word Lord is now included. It is the personal name of God. That word, Y-H-W-H, uh, has been lost in meaning because uh, uh, the rabbis, or rabbi, um, were careful not to say it, so they made markers. And that's why the Lord, and it's all capital. There's a difference between L-O-R-D, capital, and L-O-R-D, not capital. They were careful not to say his name. So we don't know what, how it actually is pronounced. Now, some of the scholars say Yahweh. That's the closest we think it, it, it's pronounced, but we don't know. But that is his personal name. So in Genesis 2, he reveals himself as a personal God. He's not a distant God that just created and left you alone. He said, this is my name, and I will give you yours, and you and I will know each other. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. We'll come back to that. Let's go to our second text in chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, suit, a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. Let's stop there. Now I have been married for going on to 12 years. That's right, right? <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. And we have, uh, in those 12 years, we have three amazing children. Nara, Naya, and Aodin. And my second one is actually here today. She wanted to sit in. The whole week, she was, she was like, hey, seven days before you preach. <laughs> oh, thanks, Naya. No pressure at all. But she's amazing. And in those 12 years, there's been ups and downs. And I couldn't do them without her. See, the word will say that you're just a helper to the woman. And they're going to make you feel small. But the Hebrew word for helper is called ezer. Do you know who that, that word is only used for? God. 
It's only ever used for God, no one else. So don't ever let the world tell you that you're small. When God called you a helper suitable for him, he called you someone opposite of man who can only do the work to help him. You're the only one. Notice when we read the, the passage, God uh, sent Adam to name the, the animals, right? I can just see Adam looking, oh, that's a dog, that's a dove, that's a bird. Oh, I don't know what that is, but oh, that's probably a platypus. Oh, maybe, I don't, I don't know what to call that one. But at the end of that, right, at the end of that, you can just see Adam's mind and say, where's mine? Hmm. And God knew that. And God knew that. See, in the original Hebrew, when Adam said, this is the bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh, it's actually read as a joyous astonishment. So you gotta read that with, with some oomph. It's basically him saying, now, at last, I have you, you're mine, you're me. Opposite but, but similar. Equally created by God with different roles. It's amazing because God establishes relationship. God established that and said you are his and he is yours. One of the lies that the word tells you is that you have to find your soulmate. Mm. Our movies are built into that, right? Um, are you familiar with Tom, uh, what's that movie with Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger? Um, and then the climax of the movie is Tom running into the room and says, you complete me. Jerry Maguire, thank you. <laughs> but that's what they're selling you. That's what the world is selling, that, you, that the other person will complete you. See, the surprising thing is, when they said that you need a soulmate, that's true. It's just not the other person. Your soulmate is someone else. It's Jesus. See, the fact that if you put that soulmate into someone else, you put them on a pedestal above God, and that's someone that they can never be. They can never be God for you. Nor I, nor your spouse, nor your friend, your best friend, nor your kids. My prayer for our lives, for my wife and I, is that I don't, we don't shepherd or steward our kids, that they're, they're, they revolve around our lives. We want to shepherd them and lead them that they are important, they, that we love them, but they're not God. And we're not God. We want to lead you to God. And I hope that you're shepherding your kids that way. And I hope you're looking at your kids and say, yes, I want to support you. Yes, I want to serve you. Yes, we want to love you. But you're not God. And the same thing goes with your wife, with your spouse. They're not God. And if you're single, 
Guys, if you're single, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. Jesus says that there's eunuchs that was, uh, was doing things for the sake of the kingdom, and that's okay, and that's fine. If your life is about serving the kingdom, then let it be that way. But if you are, if your desire is to marry, then marry. Now, if you're engaged, my encouragement is to see your, uh, the, the significant other, to, to know and to recognize that they're not going to complete you. My hope is that they will love you. They will encourage you. They will be that helper for you that your future husband will lead you to God and that your future wife will serve with you for God. One of the biggest things that I've realized with relationship is that it's not a given. Being a Christian does not guarantee you a happy marriage. Being a non-Christian doesn't guarantee you an unhappy marriage. Because the root of relationships, if not rooted in God, will determine the outcome and the impact of where that's going. My hope, my hope is that you look at your marriage and say, this is, it takes two to tango. No, it takes three. It takes you, your husband, and God. Now, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, know that there's hope. Sometimes we make bad decisions and that's okay. The gospel, God, the grace, Jesus comes to you and says, come to me. There's a lot of complexities in life. There's a lot of complexities in relationship. And we're not gonna be able to cover that today. But what I am telling you is Jesus did not leave you by yourself. Tim Keller says this. He says, do you, do you look at your wife like that? Do you see that in Jesus? We must say this to ourselves, something like this. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I am giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. He was in pain. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He stayed on that cross. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding vows or your wedding day. Speak to your heart like that. When you get the chance 
that book by Tim Keller, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, is a great book. But again, it's only a book. The Bible is the primary literature, the primary word of God that we seek. And it says, as we follow along, it says that the man and woman will become one flesh. What does that mean? A couple of things. A couple of things. Remember in Genesis 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply. So becoming one flesh has itself built in marriage and sex. Sex is good in the confines of marriage. Secondly, does this mean that we're going to be the same person? No. But your desires and your goals and your prayer and your wants become so intertwined in serving God that you become one. See, the goal of relationship is not to make each other happy. If that's your goal, you're going to be disappointed. Happiness is transitory. Happiness happens because of your circumstances. If my goal is to make my wife happy, she's not going to be happy later on. I'm going to disappoint her. See, the goal of marriage, the goal of relationships, is to serve God, to know Him, to love Him, to glorify Him. In any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? What do you do? You do, you do the acts of love despite, despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender or sympathetic and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender. You must be understanding. You must be forgiving, and you must be helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide to love. See, the world does not want love. It wants an emotive kind of love. It wants that feeling of falling in love. Love is sacrificial. Love is hard. Love is the cross. Love is the gospel. Love is God, the creator of the universe, coming down and saying, I love you. It's sacrificial. So how do we fail? How do we satisfy that? There's a couple of things. Matt Chandler had a, a sermon on um, relationship, and he talked about four wells that we go to over and over again. One, ourselves. Two, the world. 
right? Or two, I'm sorry, the others. Three, the world, and four, religion. Now, we know what we do for ourselves, right? We covered that in the beginning. A lot of the things, a lot, you know, one of the most uh, popular books out there are self-help books. How to Become Better. What's that new challenge on Facebook? Ten-year challenge. How are you now? Have you done the challenge? Have you been better? Or are you disappointed? We are the biggest source of disappointment and the biggest cheerleader of ourselves. Isn't that crazy how that works? We disappoint ourselves every day. And yet we say, you know what? You're cool. You're awesome. (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. Even though we've failed at it so many times. It's not us. We cannot continue to dip into that well. Secondly, we find satisfaction in others. The devastating myth is that soulmate idea. And sometimes now, is the idea of churchmate. When people shop for the best church or the best looking church or the best uh, sermons, the best worship. Guys, there's no perfect church. And if you leave and if you uh, deny church because of the man standing on the podium, then your faith was in that man and not in God. My prayer for Grace City is not, this is not a personality church. This is not a celebrity church. This is not about you, church. This is about Jesus, church. So if you're new here today, we welcome you. We're not perfect. Let me tell you that now. But what we are, are imperfect people going after a perfect God. And then the world says, you got to have more stuff. Marie Kondo says that you don't need more stuff. <laughs> you know, my wife reminded me how much shoes I have at home. <laughs> got too many. She's got to do the Con Marie method now. <laughs> See, but here's, here's the difference, right? We have common graces. We have food. Uh, let's just use uh, an example, food and wine. Food is good, right? A good steak, a good uh, salad or whatever you eat is good. <laughs> but see, the thing is, we don't terminate on the food. The goodness and the pleasure of food moves us to worship. The goodness of wine moves us to worship. Now, I know there are some that can't, you know, just can't have wine. That's true if you're struggling with that. But here's my point. We don't terminate on these pleasures and say it's just good. It moves us to worship because God created that. God created food, and you know what else he created? Taste buds. (laughs) If you didn't have that, there wouldn't be good food. And then lastly, people find satisfaction in religion. 
It's like, number one, if I pray enough, if I read the Bible enough, if I do this, if I do that, then I'll get the approval of God, then God will love me. No. God's grace was already there before you did all those things. God did what he had to do for you. Jesus died on that cross already. He has done what you couldn't do. He has done what, what he needed to do for you. Lastly, we want to look at God redeeming relationships. So how does he redeem us from that relationship? A couple of things. Keller said this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of ourselves or self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. It is that type of love. Jesus has always been available. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And Romans says, who can separate us from Christ's love? Can trouble or hard times or harm or hunger? Can nakedness or danger or war? No, in all those things we are more than winners. We owe it all to Christ who has loved us. In Romans 5, you see that, that just at the right time when while we were still powerless, while we were still sinners, God, Jesus Christ, died for the ungodly. While you were still sinners, while we were broken, so the idea that I got to get myself together is a burden. You can't. I can't. The invitation is while you're broken, come to me. While you're hurting, come to me. Deep down, what we want to do is we want to hear those words that he said in creation that it is good, that you are good. We want to hear that so bad. Deep down, that's what we need. Deep down, we look to Christ and say, we need you. See, Jesus died for yourself, for, for everyone. Opposite, the opposite thing happened to him in the cross. In creation, he spoke and there was power. In the cross, he said, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. The spirit wasn't hovering over him. He was unmade so you can be remade. So what do we do? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the creator of the universe came for you and died on that cross? Do you believe that and you, do you want that? Do you want him to say, you are good? In me, you are good. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your time, your, your spirit, your love, your grace, Lord, the gospel, 
the good news. Lord, we want the good news to pervade and um, to permeate the bad spaces. Lord, we pray for broken relationships. We pray for hurts and brokenness. Lord, we pray that we know who you are, that you created a relationship. You are a community. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done on the cross. And I pray that the Spirit leads, discerns, and changes people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.